Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Speaking of the Arts. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to speak with our guest today. We're featuring a true pioneer in the music industry. Panos Panay is the founder and managing director of the Berkeley Institute for Creative Entrepreneurship here in Boston. Prior to this, Panos created Sonic Bids, the leading platform for bands to book gigs and market themselves online, building a subscriber network of 550,000 bands and 35,000 promoters from more than 100 countries. Panos led the company as CEO for 13 years, from its inception until after its successful acquisition in a deal backed by Guggenheim Partners. Panos is also the co-founder of the Open Music Initiative, which has brought together more than 140 leading music, media, technology, industry organizations, and academic institutions to create a blockchain-based open protocol for uniform identification of musical rights owners and creators. Don't worry if you don't know what all that means right now. We're going to get into a lot of that during the episode. At Berkeley, Panos's work and approach to entrepreneurial and innovation pedagogy builds heavily on the concepts of music thinking and, in particular, jazz as a catalyst for creative breakthroughs in business, life, and art. And he has spearheaded multidisciplinary collaborations between Berkeley and MIT, the design firm IDEO, and Brown University. Panos writes frequently about startups and entrepreneurship for blogs and publications such as Forbes, Wall Street Journal Accelerators, and Fast Company, and guest lectures and speaks at many universities and events around the world. Some of his many awards include Fast Company's Fast 50 Honor, Inc. Magazine's Inc. 500, Mass High Tech All-Stars, Berkeley College's Distinguished Alumnus Award, Boston Business Journal's 40 Under 40, and Bostino's 50 on Fire. Sonic Bids and Panos were also profiled in a chapter in the Financial Times published book Outsmart by best-selling author Jim Champy. Panos is a native of Cyprus and holds a music business and management degree from Berkeley College of Music. Well, Panos, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me today and inviting me into your office here at Berkeley. Um, I really appreciate it. Sure, thank you for coming. Absolutely. So, your bio is totally impressive. I'm looking forward to asking you a lot about some of these things. But first, if you could just give us a little background and context, how did you go from Cyprus ultimately to Sonic Bids? Hmm. I'll try to make it brief. <laughs> as concise an answer as possible. <laughs> that's that's, a, that's a several years that we're going to try and cover in about two, two uh, uh, minutes. Um, so, I learned about Berkeley reading Rolling Stone magazine. And I decided at age 13, 14 that I was going to come to Berkeley and be the next Eddie Van Halen. So you're a guitarist. So I'm a guitarist. I'm a guitarist and a trombonist. Okay. Um, so uh, after I finished my mandatory army service um, in Cyprus, where I was fortunate enough to get into the army band, otherwise I would have never gotten to Berkeley, um, not playing an instrument for two years, which is the what your service is. Um, I came to, to Berkeley in 91, initially to be a guitar player. I ended up studying music business uh, because I fortunately realized early on that I wasn't really cut out to be a guitar player, especially once I came here and I saw the immense amount of talent that surrounded me. Um, so I was part of the first music business management class uh, ever that Berkeley produced in 94. Oh, wow. Um, through my uh, uh, 
my major, I ended up getting an internship. Um, I was the last kid to get an internship. Um, and that happened to be at a place called Ted Curland Associates, which uh, I know you were as well. Yep. And um, started there as an intern. Uh, became uh, the assistant of, of the founder of, of TED and then um, I was fortunate enough for him to uh, take a chance on, on me to paraphrase ABBA and um, made me agent for the internet for the initially for Europe then for the international division I was in charge I was vice president of the international division for for some time um, I saw the opportunity uh, that the internet was was presenting in terms of radically changing the way that uh, both what the industry how the industry was working but in particular the opportunity that the internet presented to uh, new artists that were not represented by a talent agent to connect with people out there who were looking to book music, license music. And I think I had an instinct that that would totally upend the way that we did business. Um, and you are an agent as well, so you know this. Um, if you are an agent, you have a certain cost factor baked into your model as well as a limitation baked into your revenue model that prevents you from taking over a, a, a client that makes under a certain amount of money. Um, so I started thinking, well, where do all these artists go? If they're not represented by agents, how do they connect? And also very importantly, not every place that has music being performed um, is able to hire artists that come from an agent because by default if you're represented by an agent you're making a certain amount of money um, and through my kind of you know kicking the tires I realized that actually there was an immense amount of what at the time was called independent artists that were playing nightly in all kinds of places I mean from uh, small clubs to festivals and cruise ships museums and you name it that collectively amounted actually for the close to 89 to 90 percent of the total value of the live entertainment business but it's not an audience that anybody was paying attention to it wasn't a, right so um everybody the promoters and the agents are oriented um on that 10 percent on, on the one and a half billion or so at the time um, but the industry was significantly larger than that. I mean, it was a nearly $12, $13 billion business. Um, so that kind of led me to start Sonic Bids, and I, I took, I, I wrote actually a memo initially to, to Ted that was, that I, I, I titled cyberagent.com, and I said, look, I think all this stuff is going to change, and we should dive into it. And, um, you know, uh, I don't think he had any particular interest in it, uh, so I quit my job in September of 2000 and jumped in with both feet to start the company, which I started out of my apartment with, um, I guess, a technique that I'll call credit card roulette. So, Maxing out a lot of credit uh, cards. Yeah, and... exactly. Uh, so I started with my own money and, uh, you know, I raised eventually some money from friends and family, but not a whole lot. I mean, I started the company with 50000 bucks, which, you know, um, it's not a lot of money. Mm -hmm. not, not, it's certainly not by today's standards. How did you go from the nuts and bolts of being an agent to, to creating this program? Did you have a background in programming or how did you even, did, had you taken classes? How did you learn how to do that? 
Uh, no. I, I mean, just like I didn't know how to be an agent before I was an agent, right? And I didn't know how to play guitar before I was a guitarist. <laughs> so you, if you're a curious person and if you love learning, then, uh, and, and if also you learn to leverage what you're good at and also know what you're not good at, then I think you can tackle just about anything. So um, I knew that my strength and, and my superpower was understanding the market really well and understanding the psyche of my customers, which were musicians and promoters. Um, I had an intuitive feeling for how the product had to function. And I had, I think, a pretty good intuitive sense of usability and, uh, and, and sort of usage flows of, of an online product. But I wasn't a coder and I'm still not a coder. So I ended up actually developing the original site by outsourcing everything to a company out of Bulgaria. And I know this will sound like ancient history, but I would literally um, take sheets of white paper, draw how I thought the site should function, I would fax it to them because this is still like, you know, early 2000 and even at the, even internet was obviously, you know, companies like Amazon and eBay were around, but still the way that we worked back then was compared to today, man, it's prehistoric. So I would just fax them sheets of paper and we built their initial site that way. And actually the guts of that site remained in place for the longest of time until I sold the company. I mean, there wasn't a total rewrite of the website from the ground up until 2013. So that that infrastructure that was put in place, that code, a lot of bits and pieces of the code were in place for 13 years, which, you know, at some point became a liability too, by the way. Um, but I shoestrung the whole thing. Uh, and, you know, I actually, with that $50,000, I built it to a $5 million business before I raised any money. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah, it was a fun and scary and stressful and exhilarating time all at once. Well, you might be surprised to hear that things haven't changed that much because as I've thought about certain tools that could really help um, agents or even musicians um, over the past few years, I've definitely taken paper, sketched out images and sent them and gotten bids and stuff for ideas that I'm working on. So things haven't actually changed that much. Yeah. Or I'm just not aware of what I should do to make it easier. But um, that aside, so tell me about once the product got going and everything, how did, how did people initially react? I mean, how did agents react? How did musicians react? Was there... I'm kind of curious about that. Well, again, we're talking about a really different time. And which makes me sound so old when I say this, but, you know, 17 years ago, the, uh, the world was a different place. And um, believe it or not, the biggest challenge that I had was actually getting primarily promoters to uh, sort of uh, accept that a band without a physical CD <laughs> that they would <laughs> get through the mail, which for them denoted professionalism, was a legitimate artist uh -huh. or that listening to music online and judging the quality of an artist and making what for some was a pretty big decision to book an artist, right? And staking your entire nights sort of, uh, you know, uh, 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 revenue flow 
uh, on that decision, many of them were just not ready to to accept that. As a matter of fact, I would say all of them. I mean, it took me a couple of years to really get my first action, get any traction. Okay. You know, um, so I, I think I made a good decision early on, partially because of my experience as an agent, which is that I did not focus on marketing to artists. I never, ever marketed to artists. My sole focus was marketing to and getting promoters. So, because I, I had a, you know, how do you build a two-sided market? The reason why I was not able to raise money uh, for Sonic Bits from traditional venture capitalists at the time was that, you know, anybody that I talked to said, well, I don't know how you build a two-sided market. It's going to be really difficult. Mm -hmm. Good idea. I just don't buy it's going to happen. Um, so I, I'm like, okay, how do you build a two-sided market? You focus on the one side <laughs> and, yeah. then you, and then the other one comes. So I focus on the promoters and like many other things, I got the first promoter and that took a long time and it was a, actually an event out of Nashville. And then about a few months later, got another one and that was an event, a festival out of Atlanta. And then I got a conference that was happening here in Boston called Nemo that said, oh yeah, we'll do this. And you know, I had realized that um, promoters had a pain point in the sense that they were bombarded with press kits from artists. And you know, I, 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 again, I know I'm dating myself, but if you were a promoter, every day you got a stack of like CDs in these packages and you have to open them and you know they had like a photo and a CD and like some information and you know sometimes the CD would get decoupled from the packaging and you're like who the hell is this band and you know so I thought what if I streamline that communication and make it super easy and what if it become what if what if, what if you know I take the model that um, Sonic Bits is almost like an American Express once you have it as long as there's a lot of merchants taking it, then y you incentivize adoption by the consumers, right? Mm -hmm. So that was actually, I, I based it kind of that model. Could it be a passport, if you will, or the equivalent of a credit card, but for press kits, something that everybody accepted. And once you had it, then you didn't have to carry something physical with you, your CDs. You didn't have to spend your money sending all this stuff through the mail, which was very expensive for bands at the time. It was crazy. I mean, you know, it would cost you a boatload of money to press your CDs and you would hope to sell them, but the majority of them just ended up being promo copies that frankly, most of them were either unopened or wasted. So that was sort of, you know, how we got started and all you need sometimes is a proof point. So once I was able to have some, I guess in today's uh, speak, I'll call it use cases where things worked, we actually had a ad campaign that we called Sonic Bits it works. <laughs> uh, I mean, wow, what a value prop. It actually works. Yeah. But once people started getting bookings, uh, you know, it kind of organically grew grew from there. Um, so, and I, and I think it's worth pointing out, too, that this is before YouTube. This is before social media, right? This is before... Oh, this is before this everything. This is before all of that. This is, I mean, it's before MySpace, Facebook, uh, yeah. YouTube, um, yes, I, uh, iPhone, iPod, <laughs> iTunes, right. uh, none of this existed in, I mean, I wrote my original business plan in 99, um, and I launched the company in, in, in 2000, so yeah, this 
you know, Napster had come and almost gone actually at the time. Right. And, mp3.com was was a player i mean most cd baby cd baby was around founded by another fellow berkeley grad uh derek sivers Mm -hmm. but cd baby sold cds through an on i mean it wasn't an internet pure play right so i i guess i'll say that we were an internet pure play one in in terms of the music space in, in looking back at it i think we were one of the first pure uh, service, you know, we weren't, we weren't a, um, we didn't sell a physical good. We didn't have, uh, you know, warehouses. We, our margins were always super thick, you know, because all we did was just provide an online service for people to connect with, with each other. Right. So at what point did things start to take off and did you start to think this is going to work? Um, well, the first big one that we got that made a difference was an event called CMJ in New York. Sure. So I think we got CMJ in 2003. And uh, so this is like three years after I started the company. Um, and that really started... And, and, you know, at the time, my strategy was... Um, Lock these promoters in on exclusive relationships. Okay. Um, so everybody that we had um, had an exclusive contract with Sonic Bits. So if you want to, uh, the the approach was you can continue getting your CDs through the mail. If you love those so much, that's fine. However, um, we want to be your online platform. You're not paying anything for it. But we want exclusivity, and we also want marketing. So um, the basic thing was you have to put us all over your website. If people go to your website and say, how do I submit? We always have to be the first choice. If you have any printed collateral, so if you're a festival, and you have banners, and you have programs, and you have ads, and, you know, wherever your logo is and you list sponsors anywhere you're listing sponsors i don't care if those sponsors paid a hundred thousand dollars to sponsor you we will be right there with them so again i just took this approach that like if you if if you're ubiquitous then people won't ignore you so that's how we reached bands Mm -hmm. we always reach bands to the promoters we never did direct marketing to the bands ever um so I, I i felt okay this is beginning to be a real business in 2003 2004 after we got cmj and at the time cmj was you know quite large and important um and that started making a big a big difference you know i mean we it, because people people don't want to jump into something new without the comfort that somebody bigger than them is using it so CMJ sent a signal, and then we really, I think, took off after we got exclusivity with South by Southwest, which actually uh, continues to this day. Right. Um, so, yeah, getting you know, getting validation uh, from you know bigger promoters made us. And I, and I, I, we rolled the dice. I mean, to get to get exclusivity with CMJ, I actually wrote them a check. Um, as a guaranteed advance against money they would receive from these application fees. Because back in that day, if you were to perform at any of these venues or festivals, you had to also send a check for like, whatever, 20, 30 bucks Mm -hmm. as a submission fee, kind of like a college application. So I said, I'm so confident that if you work with us, you will get X amount of money 
that I wrote them a check. And again, this is where I kind of relied on my music business background. I'm like, okay, this is kind of like a uh, record label advance. So it's fully recoupable, but not refundable. Mm -hmm. So I'm rolling the dice, but in exchange for this, here's what I want. Yeah. Um, so we use that model to get a bunch of promoters and frankly, the exclusivity of the deals, which eventually uh, involved South by Southwest, Bonnaroo, Bumbershoot, uh, I mean, that, oh, wow. uh, a bunch of big, big festivals. Um, as a matter of fact, there was a point where I could hardly think of a festival that wasn't using Sonic bids really made um, really made the difference for us. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, there's a lot I want to ask you about that, but in the interest of time, and I also want to ask you about what you're doing here <laughs> yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, because to be to be very frank with you, I almost never like to talk about the past because I fair I, enough. I couldn't care less about it. Yeah. Um, okay, then as a transition, if you were going to start a new company today in the in the music industry. What would you do differently, having had the benefit of the experience of Sonic Bids? Is there anything that comes to mind that you would take forward? Oh my God, a billion things. Yeah. Uh, I would have a co-founder. Why? Uh, because entrepreneurialism is a lonely journey. Mm -hmm. It's, um, and you know, let's face it, nobody's really that good that doesn't need a partner to challenge them. Uh, and also, nobody's really that well-rounded that can do everything. So I think in hindsight for me, I would have had a technical co-founder. Instead of outsourcing it to the um, I mean, you know, I'm not going to revise my own history because I made the decision that I made and then I, I, in, it worked out well, <laughs> you know, the Definitely. company's still around 17 years from now. So I guess technically we did something right. Um, but for me, on a personal level, and on a growth level, uh, even for the company, I think that at some point I was holding it back because I did make some decisions early on that kind of, you know, in hindsight, I think hamstrung the business from, from growth by not having a technical co-founder. Mm -hmm. So that would be one. Two, I think... Um, you know, giving advice to young entrepreneurs, I would say um, not everything is urgent and uh, take time off because you'll burn out if you don't. Um, value your personal time because, you know, you are, I, I, I feel like you seem like a runner, so, you know, <laughs> your body is comprised of what you put in it. Right? So if you take care of what you put in your body, then, you know, your body's a machine, right? But somehow we don't always necessarily take equal care of what we put in our head, right? I mean, you have two types or maybe three types of fuel, right? You have like, you know, food that you eat. I think you have, you know, stuff that you read, right? And then you have like spiritual fuel. And we often kind of ignore, if you're an entrepreneur, you probably tend to ignore all three of them. And at some point, you're going to hit a wall. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a way to get inspired and grow, you're going to hit a wall. Uh, an intellectual wall, an emotional wall, a spiritual wall. You're going to hit it. Um, and at some point, I think, especially towards the end of my 13 years, um, I was burning out. Now, I, I wouldn't have told you at the time. Looking back, I know that I was burnt out. I lost my creative energy. Um, I would say learn how different financial instruments work. I was fortunate enough to have understood that, 
but I see a lot of entrepreneurs who don't. Mm. What does it mean to take angel investors? What does it mean to take on something as simple as credit card debt or something as complicated as um, you know venture debt? What does it mean to take on a venture capital partner? How do these things work? You know, um, how do bridge loans work? I mean, there's a lot of things that you know you don't. You're not going to learn business school. You're not going to learn a music school. That if you don't understand the complexity of these mechanics, they're going to come back and 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 haunt you no matter what. Um, get a good attorney. I had to this day my closest partner is my attorney. Who I still use, you know, um, uh, and and it makes all the difference. Those early documents that you're creating, that you're not paying attention to. Oh, it's the governance. Who the hell cares about the governance, right? About a company that is just me, <laughs> you know. Oh, you know, I'm going to put a board of directors together. Okay, I'm just going to get a bunch of people whose names seem good, right, on the piece of paper because I'm looking to raise money, and all these decisions make a huge difference in terms of what happens to your business. Um, just not be shy to pick up the phone and ask for advice. Uh, you you are as good as the network of people that you have. That's mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I think your entire professional life is that. It's not your job. It's not the money in the bank. Right. It's not. It, it's it's honestly the aggregate amount of contacts and people that you have to reach out for advice, for connections, for business, for whatever. So. Maybe my last point is that network, that is your treasure trove. So treat it really well, like focus on relationships. Mm -hmm. For me, if you had to ask me one thing that I would tell everybody is focus on their relationship, not just the deal. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I it's mean, great advice. You know, it's, yeah. it's easy. Like I, I remember people telling me, you know, don't leave money on the table. Don't leave money on the table. I disagree with that. I actually always felt that repeat business is more important than one-time great business, you know? And I actually always had the attitude, even to this day, leave something on the table because that's an investment in return business that you will get from that person. Yeah. You know, I was an agent. So I know, you know, most people would say I'm a, a, a pretty good negotiator, but, um, you know, I've just never subscribed to that. And I always subscribe to the fact that at the end of the day, I want to first develop a, a good, I'm not shy of confrontation. I've never been that, you know, but uh, having good relationships will take you a lot farther than having a big ass bank account. Mm -hmm. It's a great point. I've heard that described before as your um, net worth is your network, huh. or vice versa. Uh, okay, I've never heard that. Yeah, but um, so that's a great transition because you started talking about your role now as um, how you are starting to mentor people and with working with students. So I want to ask you now a little bit about the Berkeley Institute for Creative Entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Um, when did it start and what does it do? And tell me a little bit about uh, what's going on here. So I sold Sonic Bids in 2013. Um, and this was actually after, you know, a pretty difficult personal time um, for me. And um, 
I was at the time chair of the advisory council uh, at Berkeley, the presidential advisory council. The president of Berkeley was on my board of directors at Sonic Bids. So even though I had left the college, you know, like a decade earlier, more, what am I talking about? No, 20 years earlier. Uh, time flies. <laughs> yeah, for, uh, I left in 94, this is 2014, right? 20 years earlier. Um, you know, I maintained contacts. I, a lot of the people that I recruited for Sonic Bits, which is like uh, you know, three miles from here, maybe less, uh, came from the college. Um, I was always grateful for the education that I got here, for the opportunities. I mean, I, I started the interview by saying that I got my first gig through an internship that I mm -hmm. got through the college. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was a foreign kid, right? I, I grew up elsewhere. I didn't have an American citizenship. I had. It was one of those things where if if Plan A doesn't work, there is no Plan B. You know, yeah. like if I don't get a green card, I don't get a job that gets me. You know, at the time, uh, you know, an H-1B visa that leads me to a green card. I'm screwed. I have nothing else to do. But, um, you know, so I had that affinity with Berkeley. So at some point after I sold the company, um, and admittedly, I wanted to leave at the time that I sold it. I think the buyers at the time, this is very typical. They're like, no, you have to stay. But I was really deeply, utterly unhappy. I just did not want to be in that environment. Um, and it wasn't just, oh, I sold it. I couldn't work with somebody else. I. I mean, I work for other people now. I don't run the place, you know? Like, I, I never had that complex as a person that I have to always be the guy. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I was just, I, I, I think I ran out of my creative juice. And I think once you do that, you feel really empty. <laughs> you feel boxed in and you feel empty. Uh, it's sort of like a painter running out of paint or like, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and... Um, uh, we started talking about basically the college's approach to career preparedness, that um, the industry was changing, it was changing very quickly, um, at the time it was rapidly declining, and the feeling that Roger had, our president, was that the college wasn't doing enough to foster a mindset for them to go out there and develop careers in this rapidly new um, and vastly changing environment. So um, we started talking about the concept of this institute that um, we call the Institute for Creative Entrepreneurship or Berkeley ICE. And the mission behind it is to foster uh, the entrepreneurial mindset um, and, and to also promote innovation across Berkeley. And we don't define entrepreneurship as just the mere act of starting a business. It's not actually even a focus of ours. Um, and it's about developing a mindset of entrepreneurialism of approaching or approaching your career as if you are a startup. Mm -hmm. um, some of the things that we talked about earlier in terms of advice applies to every musician out there. But the challenge with a lot of, not just music education, education period, is that you become hyper-specialized in something but ironically, the very skills that you need to be able to exercise that specialization, you never get, you know. Uh, and this kind of tends to be true whether you're a lawyer, right, and you have to start your own office, your own legal office, or you're a musician, and guess what? You're not going to get hired by anybody finishing college. You're going to go out there, and you're going to have to kind of like uh, string together a career made out of all kinds of different ways of making money. And at the time... I felt that the college was letting them down. 
so that was the impetus behind the the uh, the institute, which is now three and a half years old, um, and it really has what I'll say three focal areas: um, learn, inspire, apply. Um, so in the learning area, this is more curriculum driven. So we have. Um, courses which now have been bundled together and form a minor that um, I'll say coach these mindsets to the students. I use the word coach because I think that everybody's an entrepreneur is just not always implicitly or explicitly acknowledged. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know I think that as, as humans, we are engineered to be entrepreneurially, right? Um, it's just, you know, post-industrial age, we've all just, you know, our entrepreneurial muscles atrophied because we're all just used to showing up somewhere and getting a paycheck. Yeah. But before that, everybody was entrepreneurial, and I think we're going back to that anyway. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, those courses involve everything from collaboration with MIT to build engineering capacity or technological capacity to mindset uh, development, uh, fundamentals of how the creative industries uh, work, um, uh, and also a lot of collaborative and practical experiences that uh, often tie in directly with industry um, industry contacts and industry relations, just to sort of, you know, break break the comfort zone, break the break the uh, the so-called academic bubble that does exist, and it's true in every academic institution. And then the other two areas, inspire and apply. The inspiration piece is around how do I develop, how do I broaden your view of what is possible with your music education. And a lot of it actually has to do with helping them understand the transferability of their musical instincts to their careers journeys. That um, skills like collaboration, listening, improvisation, presenting—I um, can go on and on. These uh, natural instincts that you have as a musician are actually directly applicable onto your uh, entrepreneurial journey. And actually, a lot of that has been formed by my own process. I mean, I've always, even though I don't play music as much anymore, I always consider myself to be a musical being. So with my company, I thought a lot of it, a lot of it as a band. And, uh, you know, things like timing and rhythm and all that make a difference in every facet of, 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 of life. Um, so that involves um, uh, actually trips to Silicon Valley that we organize for students. Um, to talks uh, from uh, entrepreneurs who are pursuing non-music related careers but their musicality has actually rather informed a lot of what they're they're doing um, and then the third area the apply actually this is more of our research uh, lab and through that we're um, uh, actually running a giant initiative which I'm not going to go too much into right now called open music where we've brought together about 190 companies from across the entire musical uh, music industry ecosystem so all the labels all the streaming services publishers performing rights societies to agree to an open protocol for uniform identification of rights ownership across the industry um, so our students are actually quite involved in that and you know as I said the Institute's mission is to promote entrepreneurialism and innovation entrepreneurialism within Berkeley, innovation within Berkeley, but also we believe that as an academic institution, we can be a coordinating mechanism for advancing innovation across the industry, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to change 
the career trajectory of the people that you're educating is not enough to work on the internal mindsets of everybody. You also have to use your platform as a lever to advance innovation in the industry. So what good is to have an entrepreneurial mindset if you're going into the raw desert? I mean, maybe you'll survive, but you're not going to thrive, right? right? So the idea is, okay, work on the environment and then work work on the internal um, uh, you know, actors as well. Yeah. So... For everyone listening, what Panos was just speaking about is the Open Music Initiative. Um, and I was going to ask him a little bit about it, but you can look it up online. Uh, it's fascinating what you guys are doing. Maybe we could even do a whole other episode on specifically that. I'll be delighted to do <laughs> Maria, that. I, I, can, I, can, more time. I can give you a bit of a preview if you want, or if you have any other questions, I'm happy to well, uh, go I was going to ask, um, just in the most general sense, what is a blockchain-based open protocol for uniform identification of musical rights owners and creators? Can you break that down a little bit for those of us who don't <laughs> that exactly itself know? sounds so intimidating. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell is that? Um, well, first of all, let's, let's take the word blockchain out of it. Um, right now, to make the challenge, and I think for the audience that's in the industry, it's probably not a complete foreign challenge. Because of the way that the industry has grown historically, and because most of the constructs that we use, both on the identification of rights ownership as well as the copyright part of it, right? These are constructs that predate not last century, but the century before last, right? So they they are uh, they've originated during the player piano era, which was in some ways the iPod of its time. It was the first time ever that people were able to hear music without physically being present um, in the place where the music was being created, right? Mm -hmm. So, to cut a long story short, um, because of the evolution of the industry, there is no uniform way that the industry uses to identify ownership of who owns what and who's owed what, right? So, in every piece of music that exists out there, that we listen to, there is a, an owner of the sound recording, which is relatively easy to find, it tends to be a label, and then there's the owner of the underlying composition, which is a songwriter and a publisher, um, but today's music is not made with, you know, one person or two people sitting there and writing music together, I mean, there's often eight, nine, ten different creators with eight, nine, ten different music publishers, um, and all these music rights are actively sold and bought all the time. So when you're hearing about all these lawsuits, mm -hmm. it's because with the new ways of music distribution, um, you know, uh, streaming services, uh, satellite radio, obviously all the music that's being shared across user-generated uh, media, YouTube, and so forth, this increasing complexity of both making music and consuming music has created a big mess and there's billions of dollars every year that go both uncollected and undistributed to rightful owners because it's not easy for people to know who to pay. Mm -hmm. So, and also there's just a lot of people who don't pay because they hide, because they hide behind any number of constructs, sometimes legal, sometimes illegitimate. Mm -hmm. So the, Approach is, okay, folks, if we all agree to share enough information uh, and we create a protocol that governs the sharing of this information, right, 
um, then in theory, all this data exists, it's just not shared. So if we create a protocol that enables us, in theory, a protocol is almost a, both a governor and a translator, right? It governs how data is exchanged, and it also translates, to some degree, data that you may identify one way and identif identify another way, but the protocol knows we're talking about the exact same thing, right? So that's the attempt. And, and it's called an open protocol, unlike a closed protocol, because an open protocol is one on top of which anybody can come and build an application on top of it. So what the hell is an open protocol? SMTP is a protocol that governs email communication, right? Or TCP IP is a protocol that governs basically all the internet traffic that, that we see uh, and, and, and experience. And, and um, these open protocols have catalyzed innovation in the spaces because all you, all you need is a Squarespace account and a domain name, you know, to be able to connect to a several billion people audience. That's all you need, nothing else. You don't care about the complexity of how somebody using some, you know, 19, some 2008 phone, iPhone, uh, is accessing and viewing the website that happens to have been developed in some warehouse in Alston. You know, like, you don't care. It just happens by miracle. Well, it's not a miracle. There's been a lot of work that took place over decades that brought us to a point where there is interoperability, right? No matter the browser, no matter the OS, no matter the device, you trust mm -hmm. that this data, because all the internet is is data, reaches somebody in, in an intact way. It's interoperable. Same with streaming. Like, the, the protocols govern everything, right? Um, so, I mean, you know, you can take this podcast, you're going to put it, you know, somewhere, and by and large, you can trust that no matter the device, no matter the player, you know, like, people will be able to stream it irrespective of device or browser, you know, or any number of other variables. So that's what interoperability fundamentally means. So it's open because similar to the fact that, you know, you can build a new email uh, application and it doesn't matter. I can use that. It doesn't matter if you're accessing it through Gmail or through uh, Apple Mail or Outlook. You're going to get it, mm -hmm. right? You're going to get that email. That's, that's what interoperability means and that's what an open protocol ultimately means. The, the belief that we have is that if you have this, you're catalyzing innovation. You're moving away from uh, a model where, you know, licensing is done in, in a blanket way. Licensing is supremely expensive. Um, you know, we don't consume music locally anymore. We use we consume music globally. There's no reason why in 2017, if you're an artist, you have zero idea where your music is being played or why you're getting a check or if you should be getting a check, right? Um, there's fingerprinting technology. There's no reason why if my music is getting played in a restaurant, I'm still relying in 2017 on some random sampling from some random PRO to pay me something two years down the road and I get a check and I should somehow be really super grateful for having gotten 57 cents without really knowing why. Right. You know, like if you have, 
if you put up a website, you know in real time everybody who's accessing that website and you get all kinds of amazing analytics irrespective of whether those people are accessing that content from, you know, uh, Kenya or India or Finland. It doesn't matter. You don't know who it is, but you damn well know where they're from and you know a lot of information about them, right? Mm -hmm. Why couldn't that happen with music? I mean, every all the, almost all music consumption today is digital. Why can't I have a dashboard that shows me in real time whether my music is being streamed in Korea or it's in a restaurant in, uh, in Abu Dhabi, right? Or it's in a TV commercial in, you know, some local station in Boston or somebody took a stem of my music, the bass line or the, or the vocal or the drum loop and created something wholly new and different and shared it on social media, you know? So we, technolo the technology is there to do all this. So nothing of what I'm, nothing of what I just described is something you have to wait for 10 years to happen. The only reason why it's not happening is two, it's two, twofold. Uh, political will by the participants and the fact that up until today, every effort to address this issue was done by using a mindset of centralization. Let's create a central database where all this information is housed and every attempt has collapsed because you know, there's a simple uh, pushback to any central uh, authority uh, having this information. Why am I giving you all the power, mm -hmm. right? So the approach that we're having is that this is decentralized. We're just creating a protocol that governs how the information is flowed, but all the data is actually housed in all the different participants' internal closed systems. We don't care about 90 plus percent, 99, whatever it is, percent of what's in there. You know, we're saying what is the minimum viable interoperability we can create so that we accomplish, you know, this. So that's what the effort, you know, is is all about. That's an, it's something that is it's so obvious. Yeah, like you said, why can't why doesn't it exist? Well, I mean, you know, in every other industry on the planet, right? I mean, I, I use the, anal the analogy of like um, I'll, I'll say two examples before we have to wrap up. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in the turn of last century. Um, Every building had dozens of cables going into it because there were dozens, if not hundreds, of telephone companies. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. there was no interoperability. I couldn't, I know this is blowing people's minds, but there was a time when if you and I were not on the exact same phone company's network, you couldn't call me. Well, not, not to interrupt, but I just listened to a podcast this morning with the, one of the co-founders of Compaq from the early 80s, and he said exactly what you were talking about. What I didn't realize, because this was a little bit before my time, you could, if I had a computer in early 1980s and you had a computer, odds are there was no way that you could run the same information on your computer that I could run on mine because it, was, it wasn't interoperable. I had no idea. Exactly. Um, Something so as simple as that we take for granted that you can access the information anywhere on any device. That was light years away. Well, it's not that long ago that, you know, there were so-called PC-compatible computers right. and Apple computers, and there was no interoperability between the two OSs. Yeah. You know, eventually, actually, the Internet blew all that up. So mm -hmm. who, nobody exactly even thinks about yeah. yeah, nobody even thinks about that anymore. It's like yeah. so natural to people today that that exists that nobody realizes that actually not that long ago, 
20 years ago, maybe even 15 years ago, what we're just talking about wasn't possible. Right. You know, so uh, maybe 20, 25 years ago. Um, to go by example, so we talked about phone companies, but eventually, you know, creating interoperability has fostered, I mean, you know, Telephony hasn't just changed the way we communicate. It changed everything. The internet wouldn't exist. Mobile payments wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. Getting people out of poverty, education, right? So many things have changed because of this, right? Um, the airline industry is another. I, I, you know, this is a more crude example, but I say to people, look, every airline is competing with each other, yeah, right? Or at least in most situations. But sharing a certain amount of information that's easily understood by everybody, aka flight plans, flight paths, <laughs> right? Right. And having certain conditions that govern these makes everybody safer and therefore makes an industry hopefully, uh, you know, grow. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, economics of the airline industry aside, <laughs> um, we don't have that in music. And my view is that if you don't have that, you're never going to grow, right? And right now, it's good that we've had a nice sort of increase for the first time uh, in decades in the industry. But let's not get too happy about that. Like, so my view is that you, where you have openness, you have innovation because you're attracting young people, new people. I don't care if they're young, but you, new ideas. Mm -hmm. If you remove the issues that we're having and the, and the barriers to entry, you're attracting capital. No, I mean... Even to this day, there's not a whole lot of capital going into the music business. How do you expect to grow if you're not attracting talent, if you're not attracting innovation and new ideas, and if you're not attracting capital? You'll never grow. I mean, do we want an industry that's going to be like, you know, whatever, uh, a fraction of what it was uh, a, decade and a, a decade and a half ago? No. I mean, every, if you're not growing, you are dying. Uh, and I don't think we should take the commercial music industry for granted. It's not... It's, it's not a very old industry, you know, like, um, I mean, at its best, it's a hundred year old industry, but it's not even a hundred year old industry. The truth for me, commercial music industry only became what it is today, post mid fifties. And, you know, the guy that we see on that poster right there, you know, Elvis, I mean, for me, yeah, some people will argue about Sinatra and Bing Crosby and Duke Ellington, but, you know, rock stars, and what we know as an industry did not really exist prior to the 50s. Man, that's like 70 years. Mm -hmm. That's nothing. That's a drop in the bucket. So assuming that what's coming is, is necessarily going to be the same as what we had, it's just ridiculous. I mean, we have to like nourish it and care for it. And that's the, that's the attempt behind how we're doing. Yeah. Well, I could sit here and talk to Panos all day if he would let me. I think we're going to have to do another episode. Um, I want to thank you very much for your time. And uh, I hope you have a great Memorial Day weekend coming up. And thank you to everybody listening. This has been really great. I've learned a lot, and I really appreciate your time. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it as well. You bet. We're going to do this again. We'll see you.